Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, no education worker strike, at least not for the moment. The province and CUPE come to an agreement, but will the union members ratify it? When does democracy not mean majority rule? In Ontario, apparently, as the Better Municipal Governance Act lets some Ontario mayors prevail with only one third of their councils on side. And the right to die by your spouse in long-term care is one step closer to reality. MPP Catherine Fife joins us to discuss her private member's bill. It's Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022, so let's get to it. Okay, can I say a few things off the top here? Uh, Yes, sir. You're going to give me a little license here? First of all, I want to thank Tiffany Lamb, who normally produces this segment, for sitting in for me last week. She did great. She she did a terrific job. I was uh, away in the UK last week, and uh, she pinch hit. Nice sports (laughs) metaphor that you guys used. That was nice. There was one thing that I believe I heard in the signing off of last week's podcast that I must confess, because I did listen. Even though I wasn't on it, I listened anyway. And I must confess, I wonder, I thought maybe it required a little explanatory note. Uh, the bit where I said you were dead to me? <laughs> yes, that would be it. That would exactly be right. Now, what do you mean I'm dead to you? What I mean is I'm like an infant. I have no object permanence. Like, if I, if I put on dark sunglasses, man, it, it's a bad day. <laughs> I'm totally not buying any of this. Now, regular listeners will know that off the top, we have begun to share comments that we get about what people like or don't like about the job we're doing or the things we're saying. So, what have we got up this week? Uh, This week's question, or uh, discussion prompt, rather, uh, comes from Satish Ramkasunsing from Rockwood, Ontario, uh, referencing a somewhat recurring conversation in our last few episodes around uh, why people's displeasure with the notwithstanding clause is not translating into uh, political pain for governments. Satish says... In a first-past-the-post electoral system, it is difficult for a majority of citizens opposed to its use to penalize a government that uses the clause. A majority can be formed in a a parliament or a legislature uh, with less than 40% of the vote. Uh, Mathematically, of course, that is correct. Uh, Satish went on to say that it's on us journalists to hold politicians' feet to the fire by getting them on the record to say they'll never use the notwithstanding clause should they be elected. Which... You know, fair, though I think sometimes we've seen the politicians can certainly uh, backtrack on things that they say, clear, unambiguous uh, uh, commitments that they make uh, prior to an election. Uh, We have seen uh, Premier Doug Ford do that about the Greenbelt just last week. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Steve, uh, do you think first past the post might be to blame here? I don't know if I'd use the word blame, but I actually I I, I take Satish's point to heart. I think there's that that's not a bad argument, actually. Our elections have been getting so poorly participated in, if I can say that, uh, that um, what did Doug Ford get in the last election? Got 40, 41 percent of the total vote, something like that. And if if half the people vote, that basically means 20 percent of eligible voters are giving the Ford government 100 percent of the power at Queen's Park. That feels bordering on illegitimate in some respects. And, you know, the municipal elections were even worse. 
where we saw uh, many people elected with, uh, what was the turnout in the capital city? I think 25, 30%. It was bad in Toronto. It was yeah. a bit better in some of the cities that had more interesting races, but it was it was bad in Toronto. Lots of people want to blame first past the post for everything from uh, terrible governance to bad weather. And I tend not to find myself in that camp. Uh, one of the advantages of first past the post is that majority governments can be formed uh, and as long as they govern with all of the population in mind and not just narrow cast to their narrow base, uh, you know, it can work out pretty well. So, yeah, I think maybe Satish is onto something there. That's a long-winded way of saying I think Satish is onto something there. How about you? I think he's onto something as well. And, and I, I do think that in a... Sorry, I'm going to do the, like the movie and answer voice in a world. Um, <laughs> it, but in a, in a political world in which uh, people are uh, really loyal to political parties when they vote um, and maybe not as loyal to higher-minded principles, Uh, it's a very difficult question. Like, you know, if you're a progressive conservative voter, you're going to support what Doug Ford does almost no matter what, then what is the disincentive to use the notwithstanding clause? I don't know that there is one. There isn't one. No, not in that case. Anyway, Satish, thank you for writing. You got us off on a good little rant there, so appreciate it very much. If you'd like to prompt discussions between us, send us an email, preferably in question form, to onpolitics at tvo.org. For 171 days, we've been fighting to improve the wages, working conditions of our members, and to improve the services students rely on in our schools. Today, we've reached a tentative agreement with the provincial government and the Council of Trustees Associations. There will not be a strike. That was Laura Walton, president of OSBCU, the union within the Canadian Union of Public Employees, or CUPE, that represents 55,000 education workers who have been wondering whether they were going to be walking off the job this week. Late Sunday afternoon, however, CUPE officials staged a Zoom news conference to announce they had come to a tentative agreement with the province of Ontario. But JMM, i got to tell you, I've seen a lot of these announcements. There was definitely, definitely no enthusiasm in Laura Walton's voice when she made that announcement. No, definitely not. Um, didn't even really bring herself to endorse the agreement to the membership to ratify. She basically said this was the best we could do. The government wasn't going to go any further. It's up to the members to decide whether this deal is enough. Uh, they will have to you know pass their judgment on it and, and see whether a, a strike actually is averted now, i think i think technically she's sort of obliged to say i am recommend you know i have negotiated this agreement and i am recommending it for ratification but but boy uh, she really had a hard time saying that because she just doesn't you can tell she does not love this agreement no very very unenthusiastic some reporting from our colleagues at global news that Walton and uh, QP leadership were facing pressure from their own members to take the deal that was on offer the government had in fact offered them some more money after the the one-day work stoppage and the government backing down from the use of the notwithstanding clause ultimately we're only going to really know what the support for this deal is once the votes are counted and uh, whether QP members, in fact, uh, ratify this agreement. Yeah, which they'll have a chance to start doing later this week. Now, one more thing on Laura Walton, the QP leader. She was so lukewarm about the whole thing 
because she said her efforts to get extra money for the education system went for naught. She was adamant throughout the negotiations that this wasn't just about improved work wages for her people, but it was also about getting more money for educational services. At the end of the day, she said it simply wasn't doable. The government wasn't budging on that item at all. And in effect, she either had to take the deal that was last offered by the government or walk out. And ultimately, she decided to take the deal. Now... What happens if workers reject this agreement? They're entitled to do that. They certainly can during the course of voting. And if they do, it doesn't automatically mean that a strike starts the next day, right? It means they go back to the bargaining table and they try again. But my goodness, I mean, uh, that's it's a big risk on, on both sides. It's a big risk on both sides if they decide to turn this agreement down because, you know, the latest polls that we saw showed that the union did a pretty good job getting public opinion on its side. And if they turn this down and go out on strike eventually again, they certainly run the risk of losing that public opinion. Right. And I think the the key point here is just because the union membership might reject the deal, that doesn't mean that the government is willing to change the terms of the deal that they're offering at all. Yes, indeed. Yeah, also true. I guess I would make one last point on this, and that is when the union said during the course of last week, we are setting a strike vote now. We are going to do we are setting a deadline after five o'clock Sunday. If we don't get an agreement, we're going on strike. I listened to too much talk radio and I heard a lot of people on talk radio saying, how dare they? And, you know, aren't they prejudging the potential of negotiations? That is kind of a classic standard tool by unions to kind of focus the employer. And uh, it seems in this case, It worked. Everybody focused, and eventually they came to an agreement. Uh, You and I are journalists. We know that sometimes it takes a deadline to sharpen your mind. There you go. (laughs) You know, one of the things that came up over the last few weeks, and and I've seen it in a few different guises in a few different places, there was a a very popular uh, TikTok uh, that was shared around uh, the idea that the government actually wanted to engineer a work stoppage in schools. And you'll get different arguments for why they might want to do this. In the case of this TikTok, it was because uh, the idea was that the government actually wanted to uh, engineer a, a, a shutdown, basically like a quasi-public health measure to try and stop the spread of, of uh, respiratory diseases. It's kind of nonsense. And, I, and I, I do want people to just like not get so conspiratorial about politics. If the government had wanted to shut down schools, there was already a strike, right? We remember that. That <laughs> yes. happened. And if they had wanted to keep that strike going... All they had to do was nothing. There's nothing. That's right. Just let it go. <laughs> um, yeah. Instead, they backed off really quickly and schools reopened. You know, the other one that I, I hear a lot is that, you know, in fact, the government wants chaos in the schools to justify privatization of education. I don't deny that there are forces within the progressive conservative party and the conservative movement that favor privatized education. But again, if they wanted to engineer school closures, the schools would be closed right now. And the government is instead touting how great they are for keeping them open. <laughs> so sometimes, John Michael, a cigar really is just a cigar? Yeah, sometimes. And and I, I think people need to pick a lane because either from the critics of this government, uh, they seem to be able to believe simultaneously that they are, well, if you're a critic of this government, you say all sorts of nasty things about them, but also that they are like evil geniuses able to play three-dimensional Vulcan chess. <laughs> and I think maybe neither is true some days. <laughs> <laughs> Live long and prosper and on to issue two. These proposals are bold. I'm not going to walk away from that. But they reflect the severity of the housing crisis that's facing our province today. These proposed changes complement our More Homes Built Faster Housing Supply Action Plan, 
We also remain committed to supporting our municipal partners as they work with our government to increase housing supply. And if we're going to be successful, we need to ensure that municipalities have what they need to deliver on our shared provincial municipal priorities. That was Municipal Affairs and Housing Minister Steve Clark introducing Bill 39, the so-called Better Municipal Governance Act. The government has proposed this bill that uh, makes uh, a number of changes to the way uh, cities are run in Ontario, or at least some cities. In Toronto and Ottawa, it would allow the mayor, uh, these are mayors who already have been granted so-called strong mayor powers, they have the power to veto matters at council and can only be overridden with a two-thirds vote. These mayors would now also have the ability to introduce bills or bylaws, rather, to council, and they could get those bylaws passed uh, with only one-third support at council. As you say, not a fan of this measure, and and uh, we can get a, uh, into that a bit more in a moment. But the other thing this bill does is, uh, you know, the government is uh, has been for many years, it was one of the, the first things they did back in uh, 2018, uh, has been looking at ways to reform regional government in Ontario. Now, they backed off of a push uh, on that in 2018 because they got really unpopular and didn't want to have that fight then. Uh, This is a bit gentler. They are for now just uh, appointing uh, advisors or administrators to various regional municipalities around the GTA and uh, investigating what kind of changes to regional government uh, might be necessary uh, that would make things function better. At least that is, of course, the government's uh, defense of it. We don't really know what the government will do, uh, except that they are looking at all options. Now, JMM, I read your column about this, so I know what you think of it. You think that this bill essentially rewrites 3,000 years of democratic practice where the majority rules. Have I got that right? Yeah, that's right. I cannot think of a single other jurisdiction where the power to make the decision in a democratic assembly goes to the minority. And yet that is what the province is proposing for the city of Toronto and the city of Ottawa, where the mayor would be allowed to propose bylaws that uh, line up with provincial priorities. And if those bylaws get the support of just one third of council plus the mayor, they would be considered passed as if they had gotten a majority. I wrote about this for TVO.org. People can find my uh, quite cranky column online (laughs) if they want to look for it. But I I believe I called it bananas. And it it is, to my mind, bananas. I believe you did call it bananas. Yes, indeed. Now, let's just be really, really clear about this. This minority rules practice This applies just to items that relate to giving effect to provincial policies, right? Not everything at City Hall? Not everything at City Hall, no. Uh, However, the provincial priorities that that we know of, that the government has said uh, will be part of this going forward, include some of the most important matters that City Halls deal with, most obviously approving new homes and speeding transit construction. So this is yet another piece of legislation that is making very serious changes to how municipal governments make decisions with the justification that this is what is necessary to get new homes built in Ontario. On the one hand, like I'm one of these people who has spent many years arguing that like there really is a shortage of new homes in Ontario and we need a serious policy to to deal with that. <laughs> you think subverting democracy may go a little too far, though? I feel like we could have held on to majority <laughs> rule uh, as, as a basic tenet of uh, democratic decision-making. Well, not surprisingly, if you're trying to change the way democracy has worked for, oh, I don't know, three millennia, there are going to be critics. All of Toronto's former living mayors have come out against this bill. All of them. 
Uh, the current Toronto City Councillor, Josh Matlow, has been loudly ringing alarm bells on this, saying this law would make Toronto and Ottawa the only legislative bodies in the whole country where you don't need 50% plus one of the votes to pass a measure. That is obviously the case at Queen's Park and at every other provincial legislature and in the federal parliament. You have to have the majority of the votes in order to pass a law. So what's prompted this? What do you think, John Michael? So I spelled this out a bit in my column, but the government had already given the mayors of Toronto and Ottawa this veto and said that two-thirds of the council could override a mayoral veto. And uh, John Tory has already stated publicly that he asked for these extended powers. And I think I know why he did it, because just being able to veto a measure doesn't let the mayor uh, affirmatively bring policy forward. And frankly, I think if he did a, a nose count uh, in terms of how many councillors he could count on to uh, really uh, support aggressive housing measures, he may not have believed that he had even a majority on Toronto City Council. And to be clear, that's a big problem about Toronto City Council and other city councils around the province. But that, I think, is how they got to this, frankly, bizarre attempt at a solution. The way it normally works is that almost anything that the city council does is a bylaw, at least in terms of the paperwork, and uh, it requires a majority of council to move it forward to, to approve it. Often, it goes through can be extensive committee hearings, that kind of thing, before an item eventually makes it back to city council, and the city council then approves it in full. Or can amend it, too. Or can amend it, absolutely. And this uh, this procedure, I mean, I, I honestly don't even know how it's supposed to work, really, <laughs> like through all of the rest of the process that these bylaws go through at, at City Hall. I, I, I don't understand how it would work. I think it's going to be a work in progress, and we'll have to see how that works. But let me just for argument's sake here, and I'm not taking position on this, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here for a second. If one third of the council, along with the mayor, votes for something, in other words, they are the minority in total, but they have the power, therefore, under this new act to get something through. Does that somehow mirror the same kind of minority of support that first past the post would have in getting something through? We're sort of going back to Satish's question. They have fewer seats. They have fewer votes. But like first past the post, they still get all the power. Can we make that kind of comparison here? Well, what we have at the, or at least what is being proposed by the provincial government, is this weird Frankenstein creation <laughs> of uh, combining both minority rule and first past the post. Right, uh, the councillors that we're talking about are all elected in first past the post uh, contests, and uh, yeah, sometimes. I mean, back in 2010, I remember one councillor was elected with only 17 percent of the vote. Yeah. Right, those margins can be just absolutely bananas. Uh, I've used that word a lot lately. There's that word again. Yeah. Yes. Good for your potassium, I guess. <laughs> um, th those margins can be very, very small. What I think this question is getting at is that, you know, here in Toronto, for example, the mayor did win legitimately a, a very lopsided victory in this most recent election. Uh, he will have won more votes citywide than all of the winning city councillors did combined. Uh, you know, I, I think it's not unfair to say that is a, at least numerically, that is a, a more substantial citywide mandate than the rest of council. At the same time, what that reflects is a system of municipal elections that we have here in Ontario where uh, things are really uncompetitive in basic democratic ways, right? Uh, John Tory did not have a, you know, 
all apologies to uh, uh, Gil Penalosa, but John Troy did not have a very well-organized, well-funded opposition in this mayoral campaign. And it goes beyond Toronto, of course. Many uh, city councils or town councils in this province, there were no uh, competitions. I mean, there were there were whole councils that were just acclaimed because there was no no uh, rival, uh, no, no competitor registered against mayors and councillors. So, like, Ontario's uncompetitive democratic system at the municipal level is a bug and not a feature. (laughs) Well, not surprisingly, this development has been well received by the mayors in Mississauga and Brampton. That's Bonnie Crombie and Patrick Brown. Crombie says today's announcement by the provincial government is a positive step towards reforming local government in a manner that addresses the concerns of Mississaugans. I'm confident this assessment will create a path for Mississauga's independence and lead to greater fairness and less red tape for residents and businesses. Mayor Crombie, of course, have been leading for many years now an attempt to get Mississauga out of Peel region and chart its own course. Uh, Patrick Brown has said redundancy is the enemy of productivity. I am glad the provincial government is looking at ways to make municipalities in Peel more efficient by removing duplication. What do you think of that? Obviously, Mississauga and Brampton have a a specific history. Uh, As you say, uh, Bonnie Crombie has been arguing for years that Mississauga should be sort of uh, a severed off of the region of Peel and should be its own uh, single-tier city. Toronto is also a single-tier city, although an amalgamated one. That story is going to be really interesting to watch because uh, at the same time as I think if nothing else were going on, I think the Tories would find a reason to say yes to what Bonnie Crombie wants. What Crombie is talking about is very popular in Mississauga. The Tories would like to do a popular thing in a GTA municipality that has quite a few seats. But then there's the question of how does it affect Brampton and does it end up making Patrick Brown more powerful? And uh, spoiler alert, the people around the premier are uh, not the biggest fans of Patrick Brown generally and may not love the idea of making him more powerful. There's one other option we haven't talked about, and that is the possibility that the government will do with Peel what it did with what we used to call Metropolitan Toronto, and that is create a super city, a super city of Peel, which is basically Mississauga, Brampton, and Caledon, I guess, as well, all together in one huge new super city. You hearing anything about that? Uh, I mean, it's one of the possibilities, as you say. It would also then, you know, <laughs> the, the way these things go is like you, you only have one mayor left standing at the end of that and uh, does... Bonnie Crombie run and win against Patrick Brown in that contest. Or vice versa. Or, or vice versa, right? I mean, the uh, first mayoral election when Toronto was amalgamated was between what were then the mayor of the old city of Toronto and the mayor of North York, uh, Mel Lastman, who ended up prevailing in that mm-hmm. contest. So, uh, yeah, I mean, stay tuned. A fun one to watch. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Now, do you think there's any possibility that the Tories will bow to? What really is overwhelming opposition, notwithstanding the positions of Crombie and Brown, do you think the Tories might bow to the overwhelming opposition to this bill and rein it in a tad? Well, while uh, we were preparing to record this, they actually already did that with another one of their housing bills, uh, Bill 23. Uh, This is a bill that makes a bunch of changes to things like planning acts and development charges and that kind of thing. And it was before a committee on Monday, and the government introduced a number of amendments at the committee stage uh, to their own housing bill that uh, substantially back away from some of the the changes they were proposing. Some of this is arguably very good. Uh, I know a lot of planners and environmentalists were worried that uh, things 
things like the Toronto Green Building Standard, a set of rules to encourage more environmentally friendly construction uh, that was potentially going to be axed uh, under this provincial legislation that now seems to be saved. But the uh, minister's bill had also proposed to dramatically curtail the number and kind of people who could appeal a planning change to the Ontario Land Tribunal. Uh, Our listeners may remember it more as the Ontario Municipal Board. It was called that for many, many decades. They've now backed off of that proposal so that uh, basically anybody who speaks uh, about this matter or or about a planning matter rather to uh, a city council during one of its public meetings will now or will still be allowed to uh, challenge something to the Ontario Land Tribunal. If you speak at a committee, you'll then be able to file your your paperwork and bring it to the, the tribunal if the city doesn't go the way you want to. But now this sets up this really bizarre uh, scenario if both of these bills go forward as they're currently written, where, pardon me for putting it this, this way, but like if some rando speaks to a, a, a city committee, they're going to have more power to delay or stop a housing matter than a majority of the city council will because the mayor can get his way with just one third of council. So the way these two bills currently sit together, it makes even less sense than it did when I was writing that column last week. It's it's gotten more nonsensical. This week, another private member's bill, that's a bill submitted by an MPP who's not in cabinet, caught our eye. The bill reads like a compassionate one. The amendment looks to ensure that residents admitted to long-term care homes have the right to be admitted into care with their spouse. Now, I have previously mentioned that in a majority parliament, which is what we have now in Ontario, opposition private members' bills rarely see the light of day. If the government doesn't like the idea, they just use their majority to defeat it. If they do like the idea, they tend to steal it and pass it on their own, and of course take credit for it at the same time. But this NDP bill seems to have found itself closer, closer to law. It's passed second reading, and it's now been referred to the Standing Committee of Social Policy. So, where does that leave things in the legislative process? Well, it still needs to make its way through the committee. Uh, It's not at all uncommon for bills just to be sent to committee and then die there uh, or just be ignored there. Uh, if it then does get reported back from the committee, it'll have to go for a uh, another vote in the legislature itself, a third reading vote. Uh, and if it gets to that point, uh, at this point, you mentioned a majority government, it would require a majority of progressive conservatives to vote in its favor. All of that is very uncertain. And uh, additionally, the government House leader spoke about this bill uh, last week and didn't seem super keen on it. But we're going to get into that a bit more with the sponsor of this private member's bill. Here's New Democrat MPP, Catherine Fife. Catherine Fife, great to have you back on the podcast. Tell us what your new private member's bill does. So uh, the private member's bill that I introduced for the third time is called uh, Till Death Do Us Part Act, and it's, uh, it is amending uh, the uh, Residence Bill of Rights under the Long-Term Care Act 2021. As I said, it's my third try. Uh, it was my third try to get the government to move the uh, reunification of seniors and make it a priority in our long-term care system. And why do you think this bill is necessary? You know, like all good, I think, private members' legislation, it comes from a very personal and emotional place. I've been working with seniors in Waterloo Region now for f- over five years. And uh, I've been working with this fellow named Jim McLeod, who has been separated from his wife for now five years. 
They've been married 65 years. And he calls me and he tells me what his experience is on a regular basis with his wife, Joan. He gets he gets my petition signed by all the seniors in his home, but which of course is separate from his wife's. And the motivation is uh, I've just seen the decline of seniors when they're separated from their spouse or their partner, uh, it's it accelerates their decline, both mentally and physically and from a social emotional basis as well. And um, they're running out of time. So I, you know, I started this journey with Jim five years ago and I promised him that I would keep trying. And so that's what happened last week is that the, the legislation did pass on voice and it went to social policy. There was a small hiccup, though. The government stood up afterwards and said, you know, we really don't think uh, we, we're really not supportive of this and we don't think it's necessary. I just want to flag one thing for our listeners that you said that this started uh, five years ago. So uh, this is really a journey that for you started uh, well before uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic. Exactly. And and I was and actually, you know, it's. It's been a learning journey. I mean, I I did I knew that there were serious problems in the long-term care uh, system. I knew that there's serious problems in the retirement uh, business, which is what it is. It's 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 a business in Ontario. I didn't know that it, there's so many barriers and obstacles to see you know couples stay together. Catherine, in the case of um, your friend Jim, why are he and his wife not living together anymore? It's a good question. So uh, his wife Joan, and this is this has been documented. His wife Joan is uh, has declined from a dementia perspective, and so she she needs a different level of care. Jim, who's eighty three is um, he's in a retirement. So he's in an independent living with the option for, uh, you know, meals and what have you. And he says, you know, listen, they, the idea is that you have a care campus because people don't age at the same rate and nor do they, nor do they have the same diagnosis, Steve. So for him, he, he is still independent at 83. For his wife, she needs a, a level of assistance and care that uh, she finds at, at a long-term care facility. So he drives, I think, 22 kilometers every day one way to see her. And Joan says to him almost every single day, why can't we be together? And because she has dementia, this also becomes, you know, a point of anger for for her. She doesn't understand why her husband can't be with her. So some days she's really sad, and sometimes she's really mad. And I told Jim, I said, "Blame it on me. Like make her make her understand that we're you are." He's literally doing everything that he can. Well, at the risk of getting into the weeds here, I do want to figure out how your bill will dovetail with another bill that is already on the books here as well. Uh, We know back in September, the government passed Bill 7, and that one allows hospitals to send Ontario seniors who technically don't necessarily need to be in a hospital setting, but maybe would be better served in a long-term care setting. It gives the government the right or the hospital the right to send those people uh, to long-term care homes, maybe not necessarily of their choosing and maybe not necessarily very close to their homes. How does your bill dovetail with that one? So there's no dovetailing. This is exactly the opposite of what... The, the government bill seven is exactly the opposite of how we should be treating seniors in Ontario. There, you couldn't find a more callous and cruel bill. And I was happy to see that the Ontario Health Coalition is taking the government to court. It needs to be challenged. 
uh, on so many levels to removing the choice in in um, in our hospital care system and in the long term care system is uh, I think it's as low as you can go. Uh, and, you know, really, I, I did talk about Bill 7, though, just as an aside during the debate, because you can see that they can do things quickly. I mean, they passed Bill 7 without any public consultation. They did it in the six and a half hours of debate, which they've watered down our uh, our discourse here at uh, Queen's Park. And they amended the Long-Term Care Act at, at, to adopt Bill 7. Um, which fast tracks almost 1,800 seniors out of our hospital system into the long-term care system. And and usually, because there is a 38,000-person wait list for long-term care, these folks will be going to the homes that nobody else wants to go. Like, that's the honest truth of it. Uh, these are the orchard villas where the army, you know, went in and saw things and experienced things that gave them PTSD. So against their will, these folks, unless they're going to pay $400 a day to stay in a hospital, which we which we know that is not likely, they will be removed and they'll be sent to the home, not of their choosing, further away from their family, further away from their partner and their spouse, and and away from their support care. So we're sending these seniors away to die. And it does very much feel like the warehousing of seniors. So there's no dovetailing. Bill 7 runs counter to the goals of this legislation, which would say to uh, like a home operator, you know, we have to have a certain number of rooms where couples can be accommodated, uh, where uh, people will recognize that separation of, of partners is in fact a crisis and that there's a direct connection to the long-term uh, health outcomes for seniors. Let me ask the frankly unpopular question here. I imagine long-term care operators may have reached out to you about this bill, but like, do you hear concerns from them about how this would uh, impose another burden on the operations of long-term care homes uh, that are stretched thin? So I have, I mean, I have, because I've been trying to advocate for Jim and Joan, and you're really just trying to figure out, you know, what options actually exist. Uh, and the the Lynn operator, when there was a Lynn, um, said to me that this is just isn't our policy, Catherine. And I said, well, that's the problem that, you know, we have to create, we have to establish the policy in order to design the model because it won't happen organically. If it, if it was going to happen organically, it would have already happened. And it certainly, it certainly won't um, under Bill 7, this is not going to expedite the reunification of couples. This is actually going to separate couples. I feel like there's support from the sector, but that sector is already under such duress and stress. I totally admit it. Um, however, however, we were able to allocate two beds for veterans, for instance. That came through legislation. Catherine, you told us earlier that um, you've essentially introduced this same bill twice before, and on both of those occasions, it failed to become law. Do you have any reason to believe that you'll have more success this time? Well, it's such a good, it's such a good question. I mean, honestly, um, I, I know that the government doesn't want to do this. This is not one of their priorities. Uh, so uh, the only thing that I can say to you, Steve, is that I have three and a half years to shame them into doing the right thing. <laughs> and that means showing up at social policy every once in a while. Uh, it got referred to this committee. They don't have a lot of work on the books there. There's no reason for them not to call it. 
And, you know, if they did call it, we would have public delegations. So we would hear from home operators to find out what their barriers are. We would hear from the Ontario health teams around resource allocation. And we would hear from families and friends of folks who have gone through this. And that would be, that would show, uh, demonstrate a huge signal that the government understands that separating couples in their last years after they contributed so much to Ontario is a cruel practice, which we have every tool to actually end this practice. Well, we thank you for spending some time with us on the On Poly podcast this week, Catherine Fife. The race for NDP leader will miss you, but uh, we're glad we didn't today. Take care. Thanks so much. We'd like to preview something we're going to feature on the podcast in the upcoming weeks. We all know what inflation and higher interest rates are doing to our bottom lines. And there's now lots of speculation that Ontario and Canada may be on the verge of a recession, namely two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth. Joining us in studio is Graham Bayliss, editor-in-chief of our website, tvo.org. TVO.org's digital team is about to embark on some recession reporting that we hope to bring you across all our platforms. You'll be able to read it online, listen to it in places like our On Poly podcast, and watch it in the coming weeks. The goal being to understand what an economic downturn looks like for Ontarians around the province. Welcome to the podcast, Graham. Thanks for having me. Hi, Graham. Tell us more about what sparked the idea for this deep look into how an economic downturn might affect Ontario. Okay, so we've been through a global pandemic. The cost of living is rising. We're in the middle of a housing crisis. This is a period of economic difficulty for many Ontarians, but it's going to look different for each of us. Each community is going to face its own challenges. So I wanted to send a reporter on the road to get a sense of how those challenges are playing out across Ontario, of how cities and industries and individuals are dealing with hard times that seem to be getting harder. And to confirm, are we in a recession? No, not technically. Uh, A recession, as Steve said, can be defined as a decline in GDP over two consecutive quarters, and we're not there yet. And recessions are also associated with heavy job losses. We haven't seen much of that either. Uh, Economists are saying we'll enter a recession during the first quarter of 2023. Um, But for many of us, the so-called impending recession might as well have already begun. For the average Ontarian, it's there in that feeling you get in your stomach when you go to the grocery store checkout or pay for your gas at the pumps. Whether it ever meets the technical definition is almost irrelevant. In a practical sense, in a lot of ways, the recession is here. I remember Ronald Reagan's definition. He used to say the definition of a recession is when your neighbor loses his job and a depression is when you lose your job. Reagan had good lines, but anyway. um, Kat Eschner. Kat Eschner, she's our so-called affordability reporter, and you are sending her out on the road. Where's she going to go? So Kat's first story is going to come from Bay Street, right in downtown Toronto. We're going to publish that this week. Um, From there, she'll drive to Windsor and then on to Sudbury. Now, that's just this leg of the trip. In the second leg of the trip in January, I'm hoping to send her to a few spots in eastern Ontario, including straight to the Bank of Canada in Ottawa. Why these places? So Bay Street, of course, is home to the Toronto Stock Exchange, big banks, big business. It's the heart and, depending on what you think of finance types, soul of Canada's economy. Uh, So we thought it would make sense to start there. As for Windsor, uh, well, they say recessions hit Windsor first because of its links to the United States and because of its manufacturing sector. Um, Recessions tend to hit manufacturing pretty hard. And Sudbury is an interesting one because it's the gateway to Northern Ontario, and we'd like to do more affordability-related reporting from that part of the province. It's also a city that's changing a lot in terms of cost of living. Sudbury is a lot more expensive than it used to be, and that's something we're increasingly seeing in the north. 
And overall, what do you want people to get out of this series? Okay, well, I'll be honest. Uh, economics is not in my wheelhouse. Economics and I aren't even on the same ship. <laughs> um, but for people like me, a lot of reporting on the looming recession can be abstruse and technical and even a bit overwhelming sometimes. So I wanted to give readers a sense of what recession means for actual human beings. Um, I mean, our reporting will be rooted in data and hard facts, of course, but I think we'll be able to provide a broader, more humane look at economic hardship than what numbers and acronyms alone can do. Thanks, Graham. That's Graham Bayliss, editor-in-chief of our website, tvo.org. Okay, JMM, one last item here. You know how much we both enjoy delving into Ontario history. You more than me, but both of us more than the average person. There you go. Well, come along with me on this journey, shall we? Um, I wanted to give a shout out to the new mayor of Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. His name is Matthew Shoemaker. He is also a bit of a history nerd. In his inaugural address, Mayor Shoemaker paid tribute to a former Ontario premier who represented the Sioux in the legislature from 1906 to 1919, William Hurst. Let's have a listen. Premier Hurst, in rallying the province 105 years ago, spoke words that fit today's circumstances perfectly. And so I use them today as a call to action for all of us. He said, we are living in our greatest day, but we feel there is a still more glorious future. Let you and me do our part and bear our burden, whether it may be willingly and with a stout heart to achieve that more glorious future. Congratulations to the new mayor of the Sioux, Matthew Shoemaker, and props to you for pulling a quote from the seventh premier of Ontario, William Howard Hurst, who incidentally, John Michael, I don't know if you know this, he is buried about a 20-minute walk from this studio at Mount Pleasant Cemetery. And the mayor, before he was the mayor, when he was just Matthew, he actually came down to Toronto and he and I went over there and saw the final resting place of Premier Hurst together. And it was a it was a moment, you know? You know, I certainly wish the mayor well, but I, I have to say I'm deeply offended that he's apparently only 33. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We are at the point where up-and-coming politicians are younger than I am, Steve, and I do not like it. <laughs> Imagine how I feel working with you every week. That is the On Poly podcast for Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. Just a quick call out here. Uh, if you are an aspiring documentarian, uh, give us a ring. TVO today is calling on all nonfiction storytellers to submit a short documentary under five minutes. Check out shortdoc.tvo.org for more details. A reminder also to check out our newsletters. You can subscribe to them at tvo.org slash newsletters. This week, JMM and I discuss why Ontario so far is declining to impose a new mask mandate on the province. Any feedback you have, we are happy to hear, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. This week's episode was produced and edited by Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Shahir Tejvidi. Production support from Carla Lucetta and Jonathan Hallowell. COVID is not over yet, people, so let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs> <laughs>